This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. One of the missions of the United States Naval Academy Museum is to inform the general public and the midshipmen about the history of the Naval Academy. So if we have a number of episodes specifically about the Academy, you understand why. But certainly in the past 43 episodes, we've covered a variety of topics from Julius Caesar's Navy to what's been going on here at the Academy with regard to covid And so as part of this, we're talking about the history of various departments and how they evolved and why they're needed. And with us today is Commander Mike Norton, Naval Academy Class of 1997, who's currently with the Leadership Department. He holds a BS in Computer Science and has a PhD in Sociology from the University of Maryland. He has also served twice at the Naval Academy, first as the 14th Company Officer, as well as the Executive Assistant to the Commandant. He's currently a permanent military professor, and Mike, you are a pilot from the greatest aviation community ever. You flew SH-60s Bravos. Absolutely, The best aircraft ever developed in the history of the United States Navy, and the best guys and gals uh, who have, I just loved working with the 60 Bravo community. Couldn't, I can't speak highly enough. In fact, during uh, when I was writing my first novel, I said that uh, the 60 Bravo pilots were going to be some of the heroes in the novels. So that and that, that's why they are there. Oh, that's so, great! Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good. This is uh, the most exciting thing I've done all week with all the staying at home. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Even above the the uh, virtual graduations that are go, or actually the actual graduations at Tecumseh Court. So for for our listeners, it's interesting because we now have the record. We've gra- done four. Uh, swearing-in ceremonies. They're going on a fifth one this week. They'll have a virtual graduation later. And as we learned in our last episode with Mr. Cheevers, the previous record was held by the class of 1907, which had three graduations staggered over the course of a year to prepare them for the new battleship fleet. So have you had a chance to watch any of these ceremonies? Um, I have seen the pictures. They haven't actually put out any live or recorded footage yet. They're going to do that as part of Friday's virtual ceremony, to my understanding. So I'm tuned in for Friday, and we have an a internal Zoom watch party set up as well. So That's a great idea. Yeah. And you're from a Navy family. You're married to a Naval Academy graduate as well. That's right. Yep. My wife, Becky, um, is class of 96. We met here. Um, her dad was a uh, retired Navy captain, and my dad also served in the Navy as a radioman in the Vietnam era. Um, he was stationed in Morocco. Excellent. Now, why did you choose sociology for PhD coming out of the... And now, when did you do this in your career? Because there aren't a lot of Navy officers who are allowed to advance their careers with a PhD. That's that's true, Claude. It's a very niche area of the Navy. Um, I was exposed to it my first time stationed here as a company officer. Put it in the back of my head because um, I was still going on with aviation. But for me, post-department head, as I was in my post-department head tour, was the time where I started applying. And honestly, I wasn't qualified for all the engineering and hard science ones because of my background, uh, except computer science. But what was on the NAV admin that year was leadership sociology. And I had had the leadership and education masters as part of the uh, lead program when I was a company officer. What's the lead program? So the lead program is a master's program started for incoming company officers um, I was in the seventh cohort, which started in 03, so you can back it up from there to the late 90s. 
And what it does is it takes 10 or 11 incoming company officers, puts them through a year-long master's program, and then they do their last two years as a company officer, which was exactly the laydown um, that I experienced. The program started at the postgraduate school, transitioned to University of Maryland, and is just now finishing at the uh, George Washington University. And then you come directly to here. Yep. The uh, experiences that you had as a pilot in your community, I mean, there's a, for, for our listeners who, who aren't Navy, the, tell us about some of the things that a, um, a helicopter does, some of the missions, the variety of missions that, that you encountered. Yeah, absolutely. So I think as I am in flight school and deciding what I wanted to do, and then I'm preparing to choose the type of helicopter, what attracted me about the 60 Bravo at the time HSL community. Nowadays, that would be the HSM community with the 60 Romeo. Um, Because there are no Bravos anymore in the fleet. That's right. They've been sundowned. Um, I was at the ceremony in San Diego, for sure. Sad sad day. Yeah. So I loved the mission set um, breath. So the primary two are anti-submarine warfare and anti-surface warfare. But then the day-to-day bread and butter, surface search and surveillance with our radar, uh, logistics, packs transfer, of course, because we're a helicopter. Any naval helicopter with a rescue hook has the capability to do search and rescue. I've searched a lot. Uh, thankfully for someone, I never had the need to rescue. But just that variety of mission set, most of my time in training was spent anti-submarine warfare and anti-surface warfare. And then in operation, uh, my first deployment as a JO, a lot of anti-submarine warfare. We did a UNITAS deployment around South America, got to work with some of the South American navies. Great stuff. Uh, what are some of your recollections working with our, our partners in South America? I'll tell you what, uh, two things come to mind. One is eager to learn and share, not just learn from me, but they wanted to get right into the mix of doing an ASW problem. They were gracious enough to volunteer their diesel submarines for us to go against and track. So that was an opportunity that we hadn't really experienced in real life. So going against a live submarine, completely different than in the simulator. We did some advanced ASW tactical work as well, and that was just intellectually stimulating. So I like the mental challenge of it mostly. What are some of the leadership lessons you learned working with that particular community that you can convey to your students now? One of the things I like to highlight aviation-wise is people get the maybe the Top Gun image of it's all about you and all fun. I think what gets forgotten is the leadership opportunities you have both at the squadron and in the air. So there's two different sets, right? Because you're going to come to the squadron. Yeah, you have to wait two to three years to go through flight school and your FRS training. But then you're going to be there, and you're going to be a division officer, just like anyone going to a ship or a submarine. And additionally, you're going to be in the short span of a year or two after getting there an aircraft commander. So in my case, the helicopter, I normally flew with one other pilot and one air crewman. Depending on the platform, you know, like a P3 or nowadays a P8, up into the teens. Um, So there's that leadership opportunity in the air as well. I remember as a junior officer at HSL 42, making it my mission to make aircraft commander as a JG. And I just squeaked in there because I really was just raring to go in the air. So those two different aspects, I'm always trying to highlight to my, my students, the midshipmen right now, you know, if you did want to go aviation, 
there those leadership opportunities are there. Oh, I know. I've always, whenever uh, mids have approached me about various communities and they're talking about what to choose. In fact, my sponsor daughter and I had a lot of conversations about it, and that's and I always talk up the the sixty community because of the variety of missions. Right. And in watching and participating, we we were doing boardings of DAOs in the Arabian Sea and just looking up and having that hilo behind you just to make sure you know it was always very comforting <laughs> and, and to bring over the food to be quite frank when you're doing unreps underway replenishments watching that from the LSO shack uh, I I was really struck by by that whole evolution yeah I, I agree on my second deployment um, it was it was more of a operationally focused it was as Iraq was happening in 2003 so a lot of surface search uh, armed escort, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But just seeing that was the tail end of the 46s and seeing their underway replenishment and they don't have a tail rotor so they can just work magic going backwards and sideways that I can't do with my 60 with the tail rotor. So seeing them in the air, two of them weaving back mm-hmm. and forth, um, it was an art, quite honestly. Yeah. And you're right, they would, um, indispensable to the, to the strike group as far as getting supplies and everything. When you were a midshipman in the mid-90s, they had a leadership department. But did you think about leadership as a midshipman? I mean, you're trying to get through the classes, through physics and calc and engineering and everything else, history. Mm-hmm. But what, what are the thoughts that a midshipman went through in the 1990s for leadership like you? Uh, and how, how does that relate to midshipmen today and trying to teach them the subject? That's a great question, Claude, because I think that's coming out of my mouth a lot nowadays is that I didn't think about it as much as I should have, honestly. Don't get me wrong. You know, I was attentive in class, and the things I remember most were some of the skills that we learned, like maybe counseling or how to fill out an eval potentially. That's the kind of stuff that's dragging up from the cobwebs of the mid-90s for me. I specifically remember one of my instructors in Loose Hall. He was a Coast Guard officer. He presented the class at the end of the uh, semester with a book. Um, I think that that's where the memory comes from. But I remember he was extremely committed. So I think that the, you know, the instructors back then were just as passionate. The laydown was a little bit different than we have right now. But as a midshipman at the time, I, I was probably forward focused, thinking about I wanted to go aviation at the time, and I'm, I don't think I was appreciating what I was getting. How do you define leadership? So did, no, I want to rephrase that, or with a different emphasis. How do you define leadership? For me, leadership has always been about connecting with people. So I look back at myself going into my first squadron. You know, I graduated from the Naval Academy. I'd been through flight school. It slapped me in the face at the point where I realized that my actions are affecting other people's lives. And that was my wake-up call. So at that point, I just tried to do the best I could to help others out. Um, I've got probably 20 different examples I share with the midshipmen, but one that particularly comes to mind was a sailor at the time in the Navy, they had changed the PRT rules and three failures within four years and you were out. The commanding officer had no discretion. And I had this one young petty officer who was a smoker and he was having trouble with the run. So we got out there. Running was a little bit more natural for me than him. So we got out there and we ran, and it worked out. So that was awesome. But just anything like that, for me, if I look back on my time, that's been my center of gravity, just trying to to get the personal connection and help where I can. In the mid-'90s, based on that definition, 
who do you remember as leaders that inspired you at the academy? Hands down, 100%, my first company officer, Lieutenant Matt Hickey. He was a uh, SEAL, and I had him for two years in 29th Company, which at the time, of course, was in 5th Battalion, before the drawdown to 30 companies. And he just personified, and maybe that's where I initially got my ideas from as far as what I should be doing. He had great connections with the midshipmen in the company. He had great connections with the, I remember at the time, it was a battalion senior enlisted, not company senior enlisted, although we did transition to that after he was my company officer. But just really personable, um, really invested in the midshipmen, always, not always in the company area, but always involved in knowing what's going on. So um, for he stands out for sure. Let me de-emphasize that question now. How do you, as part of the leadership department now, define leadership? And is that consistent? Is it something that's, that's taught by the department to the faculty members? So interestingly, over this past year, there's been a dedicated effort to try to come to more of a consensus within our own department about what exactly we mean by leadership. Um, right now, the lead division director or deputy commandant for leadership and character development, Captain Ryan Guido Bernacchi, came in with a goal of getting us more integrated, and he calls them golden threads. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know you know Dr. Doug Rao. He's our professor of leadership education. He's been leading that effort. So take my course, NL110, the plebe leadership course. We approach So it. every plebe takes a leadership course at the beginning. They're in their first year, either first or second semester. That's correct, exactly. Um, so we approach it from a relational standpoint. There's many different leadership models and theories out there. Um, within our course, we are focused on that leader-follower exchange and what that relationship looks like. And really, for the whole first half of our course, um, we call it fundamentals of personhood. We're trying to get the plebes to learn more about themselves. Um, we get a variety of backgrounds coming in. Some have done a lot of introspection. Some haven't really at all. So getting that baseline of, hey, this is who I am as a person. Okay, now let's talk about how I might interact with someone else. I think we tend to forget that these are 18-year-old men and women, young men and women, and some of whom may have never been out of their state before or maybe coming from a different country. You know, we do have some international students, as, as Tim Disher said in the previous in episode. But in, I just rewatched Band of Brothers. It's now out after 20 years. And the leadership lessons in there, and you realize, you know, men like my father, who was, he was 18 when he was drafted for the Second World War. But you look at the, the men of Easy Company and the different characters that they bring in and how they change in just a few months and, and they go from private to sergeant to, in one case, second lieutenant, how do you really target 18-year-olds who may not be, I don't want to say not self-aware, but you know, when you're 18, you're, you know, you're young, full of energy. Do you try to teach some of that introspection then? How do you do it? Sure. So we, we have a pretty deliberate approach where, like I said, for the whole first half of the course, we're exposing them to um, social science um, underpinning, so psychology, sociology, a, a little bit of leadership management, but not really. They get that later in the curriculum as second class. Um, but really, it's about teaching them at first how their mind works, you know, so how they're realizing the world around them. 
and sometimes how they don't even realize they're realizing the world around them. So we use uh, Kahneman's System 1, System 2 approach where Daniel Kahneman is a uh, behavioral economist, and he looks at the the way the mind works as System 1 and System 2, where System 1 incorporates all the unconscious, automatic things that are going on in our minds, and System 2 is the deliberate area. And we can argue about the percentages, but 95 to 5 as far as the percentage split, we're 95% being unconscious automatic, which basically says unless we focus deliberate attention and effort towards what we're doing, some of these automatic processes that have, that have developed over you know, millions of years that serve us well for the most part, sometimes unintentionally interfere with what we're trying to do as leaders. So just trying to get that realization that, hey, this isn't just natural, no one's a born leader. You have to really put some focus and some attention towards developing yourself. That was actually going to be my next question about the nature versus nurture right. uh, development. Can you teach somebody to be a leader? I say no, not in the classroom only. Um, so I think in social science, the nature versus nurture um, dichotomy is long gone. I, both sides realize that it's a combination. And then your sociologist will say, it's, of course, it's more nurture. And your psychologist will say, no, it's more nature. But it's a combo. And then I think we all would agree that what we can do in the classroom gets the mind prepared, if you will, to then go out and practice it. So what we want our students to do is come to the classroom with an open mind, realizing that they're not made men and women at this point. They have room to grow. And then also that maybe they don't know everything, so they can come and take in some new ideas. But most importantly, go back out to the brigade. Uh, for my students as plebes, I hate it when people tell them that they're not leaders, they're just followers, because they're peer leaders from day number one when they step into this place. So the more they can get out there and put into practice what we're covering in the classroom, we know from the way that our mind remembers things, it's not about facts, it's about making connections. So when they put that into practice, that will make those connections and reinforce it over time and they might actually remember it. Can you tell us about the breadth of the coursework that is available to midshipmen in leadership? Because it's not a major. This is, these are all elective. There's the, the fundamental plebe course, but then the rest are all electives. Is that right? Uh, not quite. So you are correct. We don't have a major. So we have four core courses, though. Our department touches every single midshipman every year, which is pretty awesome if you think about it, especially looking at our professional instructor lay down. And when I say professional instructor, I'm talking about um, people with terminal degrees. So someone like chemistry, I think they have about 40 PhDs and they touch a lot of people. We touch every class every year with 20 PhDs and JDs. So it's, we do, I think, a great job plebe year with their leadership class. Youngster year, they're getting their ethics class, the moral reasoning for naval leaders. Second class, they come back to us again for a leadership class. This one is more theory, team-based, you know, leading other people in teams uh, focused than it is my class where we're looking at the relationship between leader and follower. A lot of the topics are the same, though, just looked at from a different lens. 
Tell us more about the ethics and reasoning course and what they would find. I'm lucky enough to be an adjunct instructor in that class. The way that NE203 is set up, we have seven, I believe, civilian philosophers in our department, and they lecture on Mondays. We're talking about Kant. We're talking about Aristotle. We're talking about just war theory, all of the classic philosophical um, thinking that comes down to just war theory. What we then do as military instructors, so we pull from senior military instructors all over the yard, and then we have a pretty large pool of adjunct instructors that are retired military officers that come in, and either Tuesday, Thursday, or Wednesday, Friday, we take them into smaller sections and do the application part. How do you apply these? Are these case studies that you would study and then discuss them? Right, exactly. Can you tell us about some of the case studies you would use in, in a course like this? Now, let's talk about Captain Rockwood in Haiti. We get into a section about um, humanitarian assistance and what may be different in that situation versus maybe a more traditional fighting role. And we look at Captain Rockwood, who went into Haiti with his unit. When was this? Uh, in the 90s, Claude. Eight, ni 1990s. Yeah, but right. I'm awful on history, so yeah, I this apologize. Was about the yeah, this was about the same time as Operation Sea Signal because you had a lot of uh, Haitian migrants and Cubans coming into Guantanamo Bay, uh, which for our listeners, Gitmo is not just the uh, terrorist uh, facility There's there. That's a resident facility of the naval base that we've had for more than a century. Sure. So what we use this case for is someone like Captain Rockwood, who um, his background was unique. He was very attuned to the atrocities that were happening. Um, he was an intel officer. In Haiti. Right. Yeah, and, under, probably under Duvalier. Yep. And he had done his research, and he knew what was going on. So what he did was he went with his unit, but then he really pushed his chain of command to try to go after the people that were committing the atrocities when really what their mission was being put forward as was force protection. Let so me clarify for just a second. Uh, captain Rockwood, I assume, is a Marine captain or not a Navy captain, right? That's correct. So he's, he's pretty junior. He's anywhere from, say, 26 to 30 years old. That's right. So he was, um, he was pushing back against his chain of command who was saying, no, 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 we're here for force protection. And he actually went to the point of going out on his own, he jumped the wall, grabbed a weapon, went to one of these um, prisons where some of these atrocities were happening, and ultimately, I think, brought some light to it, but didn't really get closure in the moment. So he was viewed as a dissenter and got in some trouble. So at that point, we're covering the constitutional paradigm with our students, and we're talking about, okay, these are your, um, everyone thinks the constitutional paradigm is just ship, ship made self. Well, that's principle one. So that orders our priorities. But then the rest of it goes through and talks about, well, what do you do when you disagree? And that's some, for me, that's at the heart of that particular lesson anyway. Do you then explore what the consequences of their decision-making is going to be? Do they understand that they may make decisions that are the right thing to do, but that it negatively affects their career and opportunities for promotion? Not necessarily a court-martial, but that they're, they went against the grain in doing the right thing. Absolutely. And that's explicitly one of the um, sections of that fourth principle is you better be ready to face the music. You better think it through ahead of time. And if you've decided this is the right thing to do, 
I need to dissent. I'm not going to leave. That's step three. So I need to stick around and do something about this. How do the midshipmen respond to the fact that they may make the right decision, but that it may kill their career? I honestly don't think so. They understand it, but I don't know if they appreciate it. It's an interesting question. Maybe if I rephrased it in a way that, hey, you are going to make a decision right now where you have to leave the Naval Academy as a result. We found that the more we can bring the case study or the example into Bancroft Hall or their life right now, the more it hits home. That one probably doesn't do that, honestly. What are some of the other case studies that you use? I can think of one right now that talks about search and rescue for a helicopter. It's bad weather. There's someone overboard from a ship. One helicopter is launched, goes into the goo, and then crashes. So now you're the CO in this case study. Do you launch a second helicopter? Or should you even launch the helicopter in the first place? Is that based on an actual incident? From what I understand, loosely based, I know the battalion officer that wrote it in the uh, 2000s, -hmm. and he was a helicopter pilot, and I don't know if he had that personal experience. What do the midshipmen generally say? Do they tend to favor one option over the other? So we find that the senior officers that are asked that question, most, if not all, won't launch the second helicopter. And some will even say, I wouldn't have launched the first one. And then most midshipmen will say, launch a second one. When I first started teaching, I almost made a game to see how many I could get them to launch. And I've changed my tack a little bit. I try to impress upon them the situation, you know, the weather they're flying into, give them a little bit of a background, just to try to fast forward them to the, the, the key decision point. But I think midshipmen are much more likely... Uh, to launch the second or subsequent. And we're trying to get at why? there that... Um, why, why is there that disparity in, in the generational response? So what we're discussing that week is this the code, right? So leave no one behind. Mm-hmm. Is it just leave no one behind no matter what? Or maybe you need to think about some other things as well. So you may be that, risking other people in order to do that. Right. So in that case, you have a duty um, to the person in the water... But as the commanding officer, you also have a duty to the first crew that goes out, the second crew that goes out, your mission, because now if you lose two helicopters, how are you going to conduct the rest of your mission? Um, then we also talk about the families of the crews. We talk about the families of the people, of the sailor in the water. So we're trying to impress upon them that it's not just as simple as leave no one behind. Um, although that is a, a common theme you see in the in the movies. It's a common theme. Honestly, that's heard from them at the Naval Academy as far as peer loyalty. We're trying to peel back that onion and say it's not just about blind peer loyalty. you got to think through these other things. How do you integrate the core courses with leadership? So The, the leadership with a capital L, I should say, your, your department. Right. So where we're situated at the Naval Academy, um, this actually goes back into a little bit of the history, if you don't mind. We like history on yeah. So I, I prepped so, a little bit. Let's let's talk about the history then of, of the leadership department because you're you're founded in 1974. Why is it? Why is 1974 such an important year that it requires a new department? You know, truth in advertising. We existed before then in a different form. I, what was that? I, I want to credit first uh, Second Lieutenant Jean Luc Curry, class of 2014. He was the I one. I had Jean Luc in class. Did you really? I did as a plebe. 
he's the one who, um, I think on his TAD time after graduation, compiled this report that I was referencing for the history. So he went back and did a deep dive into all the different instructions through the years. Um, so where he starts in ACK year 75, yeah. what existed was the Division of Naval Command and Management under the dean, and there was a Department of Behavioral Science. And that Behavioral Science Department taught a second-class leadership and a first-class law class, and that was it. That, uh, this is why I said this references back to the history uh, that November of 75, the CNO came out with policy that directed that the Commandant of Midshipmen had primary responsibility for the military and professional development of midshipmen. That set into um, action the series of changes that find us towards where we are today. So at the end of Act Year 76, that Division of Naval Command and Management went away in the Division of Professional Development stood up under the Commandant. The Behavioral Sciences Department went away in the Department of Leadership and Law. Only Leadership and Law, no ethics yet. Um, that stood up underneath the Division of Professional Development. All of that under the Commandant. That's exactly how we exist today. Now things have changed a little bit structurally over the years, but we exist as a division, in this case LEAD, uh, leadership education and development and captain bernaki is one of the three deputy commandants that exist underneath the commandant of midshipmen so where we fit in is we have the leadership education part of that mission um, i know that in uh, it was 2013 i think when they re reorganized the deputy commandants to three so the director of the prodev division and the director of the lead division are both deputy commandants. We have the education mission, and then ProDev, of course, has professional development. What would fall under professional development as opposed to, to lead? So we're talking about things like seamanship and navigation, summer training. So the YPs, the yard patrol craft, yeah. and all Sailing. of that training. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's the, so it's, you do the theory, they do the practical aspect of that. Is that a fair assessment? That's a, that's a fair assessment, although within uh, the lead division, we also have the Center for Experiential Leadership Development, or ELD. That started off as the uh, LDR department back in August of 2011, and it wraps up things like Outward Bound, Knowles, um, St. Benedictine Academy, excuse me. There's a couple of different um, high school prep academies that we work with over the summer. Basically, getting midshipmen out there, um, OSTS. What's OSTS? Uh, for, the, this, so for those who are not Naval Academy uh, folks? Absolutely. I apologize. Off, okay. Offshore Sailing Training um, Squadron. So it's all They'll opportunities. They'll do the Bermuda runs. And these, right. are the, these are the larger, faster uh, ocean-going sailboats as opposed to some of our smaller ones. Right? A absolutely. So anything that we can do to get the midshipmen out in the summer in actual leadership experiential opportunities is what ELD is about. And I use the acronym ELD. That's what it is nowadays um, within the lead division. What is the difference between that and the Stockdale Center? So the Stockdale Center, going back to, I'll go into the mid-90s now. Um, it existed before then as um, it had a different name. The Center for Ethical Leadership is what it's called now. 
It started off as the Center for the Study of Professional Military Ethics back in the late 90s. It then shifted in February of 06 to what we know it as now, the Center for Ethical Leadership. And later that year in June, got the Stockdale um, moniker. So the Stockdale Center. Why did it get the Stockdale moniker? Um, I'm going to guess that it was uh, funding, mm-hmm. maybe some money provided, but I don't know the answer to that. Well, I'd have to ask Joe Thomas. <laughs> Stockdale is obviously significant here because he's one of only, I think, three graduates who have statues on the yard. There's a statue to Lejeune, yep. Marine, and then there are two statues to Admiral Bill Lawrence and Admiral James Stockdale, and both of those are right outside of Loose Hall where you're based. That's right. And, and, you know, in thinking about it more, Claude, clearly Admiral Stockdale with what he went through. And if you look at his personal... As a POW. Both co- of them are POWs. Correct. Yeah. Um, but for Admiral Stockdale, particularly before that, um, of course, not knowing exactly what he was going to get into, he had a personal interest in um, the philosophy and the ethics. Stoicism. Exactly. Who's so He, he was a, a... Is it fair to say he was a devotee of, of Marco? Marcus Aurelius and, and his meditations. That's more than fair. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he, uh, I think, accidentally stumbled into it when he was in grad school as he went, you know, to start studying one thing, yeah. found a mentor that said, no, no, this is where you need to focus. And he, he took it up and he was all in to the point where clearly paid off for him um, in his time as a POW. So there, there is that connection as well. Um, I just don't know exactly right. in 06 why the name was given. What are, what's a, what are the kinds of research that the faculty conduct in your department? Sure. So we have uh, a, a wide range of things going on. Like I said earlier, we have about 20 um, either PhDs or JDs. And for the permanent military professors, of which there are six in that number, part of our mission here is doing research. So it's expected that just like a civilian faculty on a tenure track that we're going to be doing that. So we have um, a few folks notably that are really working hard to develop their research programs. If I could start with uh, Captain Kevin Mullaney. So he's been here since 2013. When he came in, he started off as the uh, chair of that LDR department, which was the precursor to the Experimental Learning Center. He immediately started a research program um, looking at how midshipmen are assessed, all the different things they're given, whether it's personality or strengths. And it's honestly a little bit haphazard as an institution right now. So he's been working to create this structure where we can have a deliberate 47-month assessment plan that's integrated across the institution. And then different parts of the institution can pull from that common plan. And further... He's uh, years into creating a platform to house all of it. Right now, it exists primarily in institutional research, uh, but also in a few other places. Um, yeah, I think about we give the MBTI assessment. Actually, we stopped that this year, but that exists online or in a Google folder when they get their results. So we're trying to get it all into one place, almost like a dashboard for the midshipmen where they can have access to everything all at once. So that's the kind of work that Kevin's um, doing amongst other, he's a IO psychologist by trade, so he's also researching in that field. Dave Wallace, another PMP, he, his is multi-system teams. 
or multi-team systems, I'm sorry. So think of a ship where you have a team on the bridge and then a team in combat and they have to work together. So his research centers around that. And he's, I think, a three-year recipient at this point of the um, Johnson professorship. So he's been using that those funds wisely to further that understanding about you know, how is it that a team interacts not only within themselves, but with another team? He's also an IO psychologist, also the uh, course director for NL310, our second class leadership class. Um, and he brought some practical changes to that course as well. For many, many years, Kevin Haney, one of our uh, uh, DMPs, distinguished military professors. Retire, also retired Navy. Yep, retired Navy commander for sure. Great he. He was in charge of 310. Dave came in, pretty much kept the uh, ship on course, but added this neat counseling project where the second class, as part of their leadership class in LEL, go and counsel youngsters and work on the material that they're learning in class actually in Bancroft Hall with the third class in their fire teams. So that's pretty neat right there to try to get that connection from the classroom to Bancroft Hall. The more we can do that, the better, quite frankly. Yeah, and then let's see, other research. Uh, Andrew Ledford, another permanent military professor. He came, he's a Navy SEAL before he was a PMP. He came in starting with Middle Eastern um, studies, but has quickly shifted to uh, resilience, grit, hardiness. He's been working with Navy Special Warfare, going out to BUDS, collecting saliva and blood samples to try to get at biological markers um, that might make someone more resilient, hmm. which you could think in that line of work would be pretty useful, right? Right. So just really neat stuff and the partners that he's working with. We have a... Is that, uh, those, oh. those, some of this research is funded, say, by outside organizations, such as the Office of Naval Research or DARPA, I imagine. Correct. Right. Yeah, those last two primarily feed our, our STEM friends here at the Naval Academy, mm -hmm. which is awesome. So in Andrew's case, um, Naval Special Warfare has deep pockets. So he's been graciously funded via their university down in Tampa. Mm -hmm. um, in, in Dave's case, like I talked about, the Johnson professorship, um, that's been where he's pulling from. That's a, a gift that was given seven or eight years ago, and it was a million-dollar gift that is being used um, one twentieth at a time, you know, so it'll last 20 years. Um, and more recently, uh, we've had a research fellow and Dr. Celeste Raver-Luning. I want to mention her by name because she is just really fit in with all of those people I just mentioned to um, not only conduct her own research, but support them in their efforts. Because you can imagine as a permanent military professor or other instructor in LEL, we've got other duties, right? The classroom, administrative. It is sometimes tough to focus on the research. Well, she has really been a force enabler to keep multiple projects moving um, when maybe they wouldn't have without that position. So all that stuff is neat. Um, our civilian philosophers are very well published, both academically and in more um, accessible, common. Um, what are some of the, those books, either by the current faculty or others that the uh, leadership department uses in the classroom or recommends either to students or to you know, active duty uh, commission officers. Sure. Um, so looking at our core 
courses, we don't have a particular book by one of our faculty members that we use outright, to be honest. You know, it, back in the days when I was a midshipman and um, leadership voices of experience, um, it's not quite like that. We pull from a lot of different sources. We do have textbooks, but we also pull from, you know, nowadays there's just so much out there, whether it's in PDF academic article format or more like a website or a podcast. So we're trying to bring all that in for our students. I can say that what comes right to mind um, when you ask about books, though. So Dr. Brad Johnson, he's a full professor in our department, and he wrote a book recently uh, called Athena Rising. And with one of our retired uh, permanent military professors, Dave Smith, and they're actually working on a second book right now. What's Athena Rising about? So it's about how can men um, be effective allies for women is what it comes down to. So a, a little bit beyond just mentoring, although mentorship is there. Um, and I might have this a little backwards. Their second book may be more on al being an ally. But regardless, it's about, hey, how can we you know, champion everyone in our institutions. And in this particular case, they're focusing on specific things that men in a predominantly male environment can do for women that are just as awesome and capable as everyone else, right? Mike, can you explain a little more about the Stockdale Center? They do so much as a force multiplier for what we do in leadership ethics and law. I look at the activities, the events, the venues that they host, um, the distinguished military professors that we have in LEL right now were conceived in the Stockdale Center. So although they exist with us right now, they started with the Stockdale Center. We've got a law DMP um, for the first time this year. We've got leadership. We've got character. We've got ethics. Um, Dr. Roger Herbert, a retired Navy SEAL 06, he's running our ethics class right now. Um, just that's a, a real longevity. Um, what's the best way to say this? You might have to cut this one back that's in. Okay. That's a real benefit for a department that sometimes sees people rotate through every three years to have those distinguished military professors in place for a number of years. Also recently, Boeing provided a gift uh, and they funded the Boeing Leadership Innovation Laboratory. And Michael Sears is in charge of that right now. He's doing all kinds of innovative things. Um, he has Radio Stockdale, which does podcasts much like you um, on different topics. So Captain Bernanke has talked recently about sleep. Dr. Roger Herbert's talked about honor. Uh, Commander Andrew Ledford, Code of the Warrior and Moral Courage. Um, so material that we're teaching in, in LEL, getting that word out there in a more maybe friendly format that the midshipmen might listen to. They have these neat um, QRCs up on the walls in Loose Hall, and the midshipmen download an app to their phone. The, oh, the QR codes. Right, the yeah, QR codes. Yeah, we've got code. those here in the museum as well. Okay. Yeah. So, what, for instance, um, what Michael Sears developed with Roger Herbert was they scan a, a QR code, mm -hmm. and then... A neat little animation comes up, maybe a missile firing from a, a destroyer or a submarine underwater with a torpedo, and then it flows into a class problem. For instance, the classic trolley problem um, from Ethics. So it's a, a neat way for the midshipman to interface with the class material. So that's the kind of stuff that 
the Stockdale Center is providing for us to reinforce what we're doing. And they started a program called the Associate Fellow Program that invites uh, stakeholders from all over the yard. So we're talking coaches, we're talking staff members into a cohort that goes through over a semester and takes the leadership curriculum from LEL in a, uh, of course, a modified format. So they do a few weeks with NL110. They do a few weeks with NE203. They do a few weeks with NL310. So back to the beginning with the emphasis on trying to all get on the same page with what we mean about leadership, the Stockdale Center is allowing folks from all over the yard to come in and hear what we're about so then maybe some of the common terminology spreads out from there. Maybe this is too far afield from the coursework. Do you teach midshipmen uh, in the course of ethics and leadership that if they make a mistake, they, they their character or their reputation can be redeemed if they try really hard? Or do you teach them that that's it, you've made the decision and you suffer the consequences? I'm really happy you asked that, Claude, because not only it is not too far afield, but it comes right in at the very beginning. So plebe leadership, NL110, we also talk about uh, Dweck's concept of the growth mindset and what that means and how sometimes type A achievers can come to the Naval Academy like most of them are and be very focused on a grade or having to perform or show they know things when really what you should be doing is being open to learning and open to growing and realizing you're not there yet. And it's that growth mindset that views a challenge as a good thing. It views failure as a chance to learn and grow. That's that they're hearing that from us in the classroom. So I think that's a very powerful outlook because they're going to fail. I know I failed. It's a part of life. And how you respond to that says a lot about your character. And I think that having that growth mindset is very powerful for them going forward, certainly as plebes. And I'd say after nearly 24 years in the Navy, it'll come in handy later too. <laughs> if you had to sum up the benefits of the leadership department for midshipmen at the Naval Academy as future Naval officers, Navy Marine Corps, what would it be? I would hope that the students are taking away the gravity of what they're about to do on two fronts. So, so one is the commitment that they're making. And I look at what we have in place for them right now to do that. So they're gonna sign a two for seven when they come back. I don't know what that'll exactly look like in August, and, but. And you're right, yeah, and a two for seven for the non-academy non listeners is after your youngster year, uh, when you return, you actually sign a document that says, yeah, I'll complete not only the next two years at the Naval Academy, but I am committed to another at least another five years in the case of SWO Submariners. Is it 247 also for aviators, or is that they they have a longer term? Yeah, we go a little bit longer. Yeah. So depending on what you're going to fly, it'll actually be a certain number of years from the time that you get your wings in flight school. Mm -hmm. um, so a little bit longer, on average, nine to 10 years after commissioning. Um, but right, so it, it's the point where okay, I've decided I'm not gonna walk away from my first two years, this is for me. And we want them to have deliberately thought about that, about what they're signing up for. And there's a reason that our ethics class is youngster year or sophomore year. So they get this appreciation of you know their oath, their commissioning, the constitution, what it means to abide by that and also do right by their people. 
Um, so I would hope they'd understand the gravity of the situation before they sign their two for seven. But certainly by the time that they raise their right hand, as we're seeing out here, one fifth at a time. Um, and I think most do. I I'm a glass half full person when I look at our midshipmen. I see by and large, most of them are getting it. And I'll tell you what, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, really, you know, I'll do a, an honor remediation or a conduct remediation for someone that maybe goes afoul of the system. I know I did as a midshipman, honestly. So you get that remediation and you find that there's someone that made a mistake, but I haven't met anyone that is unwilling to learn. And it's just this great mentoring opportunity. So I see it from all angles. Um, I'm very optimistic. So I think most of them are getting it. Um, no, I, no, I agree. And, and you come across these incredible midshipmen, like you mentioned that he was a second lieutenant when he wrote that for you, midshipman, John McCurry. Just an incredible example of, of a midshipman here at the Naval Academy who really gets it, who's, who's intellectually curious, who just has everything going for them. And they have an opportunity now to go through the leadership uh, classes and what you're providing to them for their careers. Commander Mike Norton, Leadership Department, United States Naval Academy, thanks for joining us on Preble Hall and explaining leadership and uh, growth of naval officers. Hey, it was my pleasure again, Claude. Thanks for having me, and uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing here. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.